welcome to The Worst Bestsellers, where sometimes we actually read good stuff. I'm Renata. And I'm Kate. And this is part one of our book year in review, where we'll tell you about our bests for children's and young adult literature. Yay. Yay, good things. So just a reminder, we are compiling a list, each of us compiled a list of our top five favorite books in those categories, and our number one worst quote-unquote book of the year for the worst book it's a book that we did not read for the podcast and for best as well although I think when we recorded last year there was no chance that any of those books (laughs) were going to be our best book Um, but we did read a couple that we like this year and the other thing to keep in mind is that sometimes worst actually just means least best If we only read decent books this year, then our worst book is not necessarily going to be that bad. Yeah, something that it could be our worst on this episode, but it's it's not something that's so bad it would ever make a normal episode of this podcast, for example. Um, And then this is all very subjective. Like it, it's absolutely not trying to be like this is the absolute best written book, like on just sheer technical merit or whatever. Like, it was hard to come up with top five, like, just to narrow it down to five books for each category. So I know for me, things definitely got moved higher up the list if I personally clicked with them for some reason um, that, you know, maybe to you as a reader, it would not click with you for that reason. But because I had this connection with it, I put it on my list. And the other thing to keep in mind is that these are the top five and number one worst books that we've read this year. They are not necessarily books that came out this year. In fact, I think the majority of mine did not come out this year, but just things that we're reading, you know, sometimes it's catching up on other things or reading recommendations of things that have been out for a long time. Right, because that happens. You know, I, I think a lot of other blogs or whatever do focus only on things that were published in that year and that's important too to keep up on what's new but for us in our reading lives we're reading some backlist stuff and probably you are too so if you're looking for suggestions maybe you also missed this book that came out in 2014 and now you can hear about it again so we might as well just jump right into it i guess actually there's one more thing that we'll point out too is that since i haven't read a lot of renata's books last year There are books that she recommended in her top fives last year that I read this year, but I decided not to include them on my lists because, you know, for instance, we talked about the Raven Boys for like a solid half hour last year, (laughs) (laughs) and I read The Dream Thieves and Blue Lily Lily Blue this year, so we don't need to talk about the Raven Boys for another half hour. I mean, we do, but not on this podcast. You should just talk to us about it. (laughs) Also, in in terms of just kind of choosing books that I wanted to talk about, mostly if I saw that Kate had it on her list, then even if I really liked it, I skipped it in favor of giving my time to some other book. So there are some that are in Kate's list that I also really liked, but I didn't put them in my top five personally. So we'll go ahead and get started with our t- our first category, which is children's and middle grade. It's actually, I think, all middle grade. Theoretically, this category would be open to picture books, I guess, but I didn't really read any of those this year because I didn't. So I will start with my number five pick for middle grade, which is Gone Crazy in Alabama by Rita Williams Garcia, which I realize now Kate just said we weren't repeating stuff we did last year, but fuck it, I am. You can't stop me. This- <laughs> We did last year talk about the first two in this trilogy, which is uh, 
One Crazy Summer and PSB 11, and this is the third one. It's about the same, the Gaither sisters, and in this one they spend a summer with relatives in Alabama. And I loved how it it really shows growth in these characters that I came to love in the first two books. And it puts them in this whole new setting. And it's so fascinating the way this trilogy has been able to show three different sides of the civil rights movement and what was happening in the 60s and how it it really would depend if you were growing up in New York or Oakland or Alabama. And they're great. They're all three great. So check them out if if we didn't manage to convince you of it last year. Yeah, I also read that book this year and would co-sign Renata's recommendation. But my number five book is Long Lincoln by Lindsay Baraclough. Uh, There are actually a bunch of horror books on both my middle grade and young adult list because at the beginning of this year, I asked people for recommendations and then spent most of the year reading through them. So uh, this was one of the things that people recommended. It's a book about two siblings, two sisters, whose poor and kind of crazy gambler father Um, sends them out to the country to stay with their distant aunt after their mother is institutionalized, I believe. Another thing that I will just say right off the bat is that I read some of these a long time ago and I don't have a great memory, so bear with me. I think I said that last year too. (laughs) Their great aunt is horrified by this. He did it without asking her and she kind of keeps alluding to how problems happen when children stay in this house. Uh, She's kind of considered like a crazy witch lady by most of the town. And uh, the girls make friends with a family of young boys who live nearby. And they're told to stay out of the swampy areas and this old church, because if they don't, Long Lankin will get them. And of course, being children, they uh, decide to investigate those things anyway. And creepy things do in fact begin to happen. I really like this book. It was sort of an interesting, there were a lot of interesting twists on it that I was not necessarily expecting. When I began it, I figured it was going to be pretty predictable, but it managed to get me in a couple places. And it was really honestly creepy. I kept thinking about some of the images throughout it after I had already put it down. So thumbs up. All right. I'm also going to, at this point, I will mention, like I mentioned last year, I don't tend to read a lot of middle grade. I read way more young adult because that's who I work with. Um, so that's partly why I felt okay recycling a series from last year because I, I did not have that many middle grade books to choose from. But last year, in, really in December of 2014 and then January of this year, I read a bunch of things because I did this mock Newberry uh, committee with a few co-workers and some people from other libraries that was really fun and it, it did make me read a lot more middle grade than normal and some of those things I read after we recorded last year's podcast so some of these I technically read in December and I'm counting them anyways because I hadn't had a chance to talk about them yet and I believe that is the case with Absolutely Almost by Lisa Graff which um, she has written some other books that I have not read and I know some people were kind of comparing this to another book of hers that I hadn't read I really like this one it's the story uh, it's just a contemporary realistic story about a boy named Albie who's very average even below average Uh, he has some kind of learning disability that is maybe undiagnosed and his parents are kind of in denial about it they just want you know they think basically if he will just try harder then he could do it 
and it's from his point of view and it so like beautifully captures how hard he's trying and how we you really get a sense through his eyes how unfair his parents are being but then to, especially to me as an adult reader you could see how his parents are just not quite getting what he's trying to do and it's just really beautifully done it's a book it's not one where there's a huge exciting plot or anything necessarily it's just really well done for this character's voice and I think really relatable for a lot of kids and it's just really sweet and I really liked it and it's absolutely almost by Lisa Graff. Uh, my number four book is The Night Gardener by Jonathan Oxier. I actually read a bunch of books that were about historical children who are sent off to go live in the country in giant houses where creepy things happen and much like Long Lankin this is another one of those. Uh, siblings are sent by their parents to work as servants in a big manor house. Uh, They're Irish and it's the potato famine and their family can't support them anymore. So they go off to this house and it's really run down and everyone who lives there, the parents and the, the son are cagey and weird. And the house has grown around, or rather a tree. The house has been built around this big creepy tree. And it's not long before the girl, Molly, discovers that the tree has a, a knot hole in it and the knot hole produces whatever you ask for. If you want money, if you want the the son of the family really likes sweets, so he always tries to get candy from it. You know, it essentially gives you whatever you want. And of course, there are sinister implications to that. And the children, Molly and Kip, and the family need to essentially work together when they reach this point in order to defeat this presence, this creature that is haunting the house and haunting them. And it's interesting. It's cool. There's a lot of storytelling wrapped in it, um, which I really like stories that are about storytelling. Again, this was something that was really creepy and that I thought about a lot, you know, at night walking home from the bus and (laughs) (laughs) alone in my dark house. So, you know, that's, I imagine what he was setting out to do and he succeeded. (laughs) All right, my number three book is actually also about some British children uh, who are haunted in their own way, but not by actual literal ghosts. And it's The War That Saved My Life by Kimberly Brubaker Bradley. This is one that was came recommended to me by my fantastic coworker, Abby, whose blog is abbythelibrarian.com. And you're probably already reading it if you're interested in middle grade books, but if you're not, do it. Um, she raved about it on her blog, so I checked it out also, and it's so good. It's the story of these two siblings, and the, it's so good on so many levels. Um, the older sibling sister has a club foot, and they both have this abusive mom. Um, they're very poor, but she clearly favors the younger brother who is not disabled, and she keeps the older sister like basically locked up all the time, and she says nobody will ever want to look at her. It's really bad, and it's World War II in London, and they're evacuating the children. And the kids hear about this, because the the younger brother gets to go to school, so he hears about it. And the mom is, like, basically, like, no, I don't, like, I don't care if you guys die. (laughs) You have to stay here. Um, So they sneak out and escape themselves on the train. And they end up, because they weren't necessarily, like, on the form, they have to go with this woman who did not sign up to have a children a, 
a children. She didn't sign up to have any children stay with her, but she's basically conscripted into it. Uh, I've read to say the kids' names. It's Ada is the girl and Jamie is the boy. And Susan is the woman they stay with. And she lives alone. She hadn't wanted children. She's very, like, reluctant about it. But she pretty quickly understands how badly abused these kids have been. She, like, takes Ada to the doctor for the first time ever and gets Ada, like, a special, like, crutches and shoes and treatment for her club foot and things that Ada never even knew were possible. And so it's this really beautiful way that the kids are kind of able to shine. And then also we learn about some tragedy in Susan's past and... The kids help her kind of come to terms with that, and it's just really beautiful. It's It sounds a little bit cliche, I think, some of this, but it's it's not done in a cliche way. I just really loved it on, on all its levels. I actually tried to put a hold on that to read it over the summer, and the hold came in while I was on vacation and did not have time to read it, so I lost it. Oh, tragic try again i i had specifically recommended this to kate after i read it because it's not a huge part of the narrative especially for a child reader but it does seem that susan's tragedy is that she had been in a lesbian relationship and her partner died and and that tragedy wasn't really recognized by the community because they didn't really understand what was happening per se it's much more about Ada and jamie but that's susan's background story and it's also i think really well done All right, my number three is a collection of short stories called The Cabinet of Curiosities by Stefan Bachman, Catherine Catmull, Claire Legrand, and Emma Trevain. This is a collection of short stories, like I said, kind of set up as if the uh, four authors are different curators of this Cabinet of Curiosities collection of strange things and strange stories from across the world that they're curating. And as with any short story collection, there were some that really worked for me. There were some that kind of didn't work for me. But the ones that worked really worked. And there were more that were great than there were duds. Uh, I think it was probably only the second book of the year that I read and immediately was like, this is going on my top five list. I just loved it and loved some of the stories enough that I immediately looked up the authors and put holds on all of their other books. (laughs) So if you like kind of weird, kind of creepy, and also fantasy and also fairy tales, I would definitely recommend checking this out. My number two book of the year is The Thing About Jellyfish by Allie Benjamin. Uh, Allie Benjamin went to the same small weird college as me, not at the same time, but I went to Grinnell College in Iowa, and we sort of talk about how it's a school that doesn't have any fraternities or sororities, but the whole school is kind of like one big fraternity that you didn't know you were joining. So when when word gets around in the Grinnell network that somebody wrote a book, you check it out, even if you don't necessarily read a lot of middle grade fiction, like I do not. Um, and this ended up being a National Book Award finalist for the Young Readers Award. And it's really good, and I'm not just saying that because of Grinnell Pride. Uh, it is about a girl named Susie whose best friend drowned and... Susie is really having trouble coping with it and what she's done is she's trying to research jellyfish because she's come up with this theory that the reason her friend died 
Franny, Franny was her friend, was that she was stung by a jellyfish. And that's her way of kind of trying to put a reason to this sort of like senseless tragedy. And there's there's more going on. Also, like Susie, it's from Susie's point of view, and we don't hear this word, but it does seem like she is maybe on the Asperger's spectrum. Like she's, you can see that other kids are teasing her for her strange behavior even even before this tragedy and then the way that she's becoming so single-minded on this jellyfish you can kind of see that and then it's also is this like compounding the tragedy as you can see how Susie and Franny they used to be really good friends and then as they got to middle school Franny was kind of cool and Susie was weird and so Franny didn't really want to be friends with Susie anymore so she's really mourning like her friend's death and then also the end of this friendship and then the fact that like well now there's no chance that they would patch things up and it's just really there's a lot of interesting aspects of this grief that I don't think are as often pursued in fiction that are all really well done so and and as you know I I do not care for jellyfish or sea creatures so the fact that I have forced myself to read so many things about jellyfish (laughs) will let you know that this is actually really good and and you might learn some stuff about jellyfish and why you should be afraid of them because you should be (laughs) on that note um (laughs) my number two book of the year is actually Renata's number one book of the year so I'm going to start talking about it and then sort of segue into her talking about it a little more. Yeah. Uh, and that is The Crossover by Kwame Alexander, which ended up winning the Newbery Award this year. So hooray. I first heard about this book, I think from a friend of the podcast, Angie, had been tweeting about it. And then Renata read it and was immediately like, you need to read this book. So I looked at my library and it was available that day um, as a, an ebook hold. So I took it out And at first I was mad because they didn't have a Kindle version. They only had an EPUB, so I could only read it in my browser. (laughs) But then I got so into it the moment I started reading it that it didn't matter because I just sat there and read the entire thing in one sitting and just then almost like wanted to turn back to the beginning and immediately read it again. It is a long form narrative told through poetry. And it is about Josh Bell, who is a middle school student. He has a twin brother and they are both really good at basketball. Josh in particular, basketball is his life. Their dad, Chuck, is a professional basketball player and has kind of cultivated this love of basketball in them. And the story kind of starts as Josh and Jordan are beginning to sort of grow apart. And Josh is beginning to realize that while basketball is his life and it's everything to him, it is not necessarily the same for Jordan anymore. And I loved this book. I actually, initially, when I put together my list, I had had this as my number one as well, but then figured if Renata was going to have it as her number one, I would put my number one as my number one because they were sort of tied for favorite. But it's it's just, it's a phenomenal book with the the forum and just the way that it's put together. I guess I did not necessarily intend for it to affect me so deeply, but mm-hmm. I just cried. Yeah. <laughs> This is, yeah, this is, like I said, I I did recommend it to Kate. I had heard Abby, as previously mentioned, I'd heard her book talk it a bunch. And I don't normally like sports books. I don't normally like books told in verse, but her book talk was so enthusiastic about it. 
And I also know that Abby doesn't normally like sports either. So I was like, okay, if she has like liked it so much, probably I'll like it too. Um, I had the same problem as Kate, actually. I hate it when publishers do this. I could do a whole podcast episode about how mad I am about publishers and their ebook rights to libraries. But anyway, I couldn't read it on my Kindle. I had to read it on my iPad, and I was mad about that. But pretty quickly, I also got really into it and just forgot to be mad about the format problems. Well, I think one reason that I don't always like books told in verse is because I don't think... Sometimes I think it's just like, oh, yeah, sometimes kids like books in verse, so here's another one. And it doesn't necessarily feel like the story needed to be told that way. And the crossover, I think it did. I think it was so integral to Josh's character that he, you know, he likes to write also, and he likes to write raps and and music. And it, the poetry definitely has that kind of uh, rhythm to it. And well, it's so good, you guys. It's so good. If you haven't already read it, just please do. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> do. It's totally worth it. It's just so well done and digs so deeply into Josh's heart through what's not said as much as what is actually said on the page. And another thing that I think is good about it is that not only, like Renata said, like there are books that are told in verse that are just clearly like, well, whatever. Uh, You know, it almost looks like the lines are just sort of arbitrarily cut. And one of my favorite books of all time is a middle grade book told in verse, uh, which is Love That Dog that uses the form really well. And I think this one does too. Like instead of just static words on the page, the frequency that they move around, that the font changes, that they use the whole canvas of the page to get this across is is really, he just sort of like digs into what he can do with this form and really uses it to the best of his ability. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sequel coming out uh, next year called Schooled. And I'm very excited to read that. For now, I'm just going to do a a short dramatic reading from this. I had trouble choosing which one to pick. Like, all the poems are good, but as I was flipping through, I realized that that they get better as you read them because you get to know this character and you get to understand, like, how how clever certain things are because he's really pulling in events that have already happened or family members or whatever. So... I I think pulling a poem from the end of the book, you wouldn't necessarily get the full resonance of it if you hadn't read the book. So I'm picking one that's from pretty early on, and it's called Five Reasons I Have Locks. Uh, Josh, at the start of the book, has his hair in dreadlocks, and here's five reasons why. Five. Some of my favorite rappers have them. Lil Wayne, 2 Chains, and Whale. Four. They make me feel like a king. Three. No one else on the team has them, and two, it helps people know that I am me and not JB. But mostly because, one, ever since I watched the clip of Dad posterizing that seven-foot Croatian center on ESPN's best dunks ever, soaring through the air, his long, twisted hair like wings carrying him high above the rim, I knew one day I'd need my own wings to fly. That looks so good. (laughs) It's so good. And JB is his twin, if that was not clear from the poem. So read it if you haven't already. I, I literally don't know what you're waiting for. Yes. So my number one is the book Iron Hearted Violet by Kelly Barnhill. And uh, like Renata said, there are books that I read after we recorded this episode last year that 
are on this list, and this is one of them. The crossover is two, actually, I think. I actually listened to this as an audiobook uh, when I was driving home from Boston to Massachusetts last year for Christmas. And you're luckily- driving from Boston to New Jersey. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Renata. <laughs> Otherwise, it's geographically confusing. <laughs> yeah. I was driving from Boston to New Jersey to go home for Christmas, and it was probably the first time I've ever been glad to be stuck in traffic because I was going with someone else and we were afraid that we weren't going to be able to hear the whole book before we got back home. (laughs) Um, And we did. And don't get me wrong when I said that I almost made the crossover my number one. I love this book. And it's so amazing. And taking it out of the library to do this podcast and looking at it again and reading through it to find a part to read makes me want to go out and buy my own copy, which I think I'm going to do right after we record this. (laughs) It speaks to so many parts of me. Uh, It's a story about a princess named Violet, who is not like other princesses. Uh, She is reckless, and she's clever, and she loves telling stories, and she loves learning about things, and she's not very pretty. But she knows from stories that princesses are all very pretty and very graceful and not necessarily very smart and very inquisitive, but rather just ornamental. And she really wishes that she could be a better princess. She feels in a way like she's letting her kingdom down by not being the beautiful, graceful, perfect princess that they deserve. And... The real part of the story kind of starts where when she and her best friend Demetrius are investigating the castle, running around nosing through things and discover a secret room with secret books and this big, tall, creepy painting with a weird word they've never seen before written on the frame. And Demetrius immediately feels like this is a bad thing. They should leave. They should get out of the room. They should leave the books behind and they should absolutely not say that word. And Violet feels something pulling her towards it, pulling her towards the books, towards the painting, towards the exploration and towards the name. And from there, it sort of breaks apart as Demetrius goes off to join a hunting party and Violet is home with her mother as her father's the head of the hunting party And her mother gets very sick. And more than ever, Violet wishes that she could be the beautiful, perfect princess that her people need with her father gone and her mother sick. And it's it's so good. I'm doing a terrible job of explaining it. (laughs) It sounds Um, good. A lot of it is based in the mythology of the world. It's a big, flat world with a mirrored sky. And there's this myth that there were 13 gods and... The 12 of them decided to all make their perfect worlds, and then they they sort of threw out the 13th, who was a chaos god, to keep him from, from messing things up, and banished him. And it's about how this story is important and how all stories are important. It's told from the point of view of the country's storyteller, the royal storyteller, uh, who grew up with Violet and was her confidant for a long time, and ultimately accidentally on purpose betrays her and it's just it's really good it's really tense it's one of those things that as I was reading it like I was stressed out because I cared so much about these characters and all I wanted was for everything to be okay for them uh it's got dragons it's it's so good it's so good (laughs) 
The only thing, in fact, that I don't love about it is that, uh, as I said, I listen to it as an audiobook. So this is the first time that I've seen the actual print book and there are illustrations throughout it. And I feel like the illustrations don't make Violet ugly enough. Hmm. She's too pretty in them. That's the only thing I would change. <laughs> Legit. So I'm going to read a little bit about their exploration in the forbidden rooms of the castle. I'm going to try to not make it too long. So we'll see how it goes. Leaning against the wall was a painting, delicately wrought and highly detailed, that stood almost as tall as the room itself, reaching a hand's breadth below the edge of the ceiling. It was crowded with dragons, hundreds of them, each one utterly unique in body and color and jaw, each one gesturing differently with its haunches and its shoulders and its neck and its claws. Two things were the same on each, however. First, each dragon was chained around the base of the neck and at each hind leg, and their chains cruelly cut into their skin, which bulged and reddened with pain. Second, each dragon despite the fierce curling of its lips, despite the bearing of its glinting teeth, had curiously and utterly blank eyes. Indeed, instead of eyes, each dragon simply had a white hollow space and the emptiness pressed against the children's very souls, almost taking their breath away. And though they wanted to, they couldn't avert their gaze. Violet reached for Demetrius's hand and held on tight. At the bottom of the painting, heaped in, a very, in the very middle, was a pile of hearts. Dragon hearts. The children had no idea why they were so convinced the things were dragon hearts, but they knew all the same. Below the dragon hearts was a series of sim symbols similar to those in the book that was still clutched in Violet's left hand. A name, maybe? A title? There was no telling. And above, on top of the pile of dragon hearts, stood a figure. What is that? Demetrius whispered. I don't know, Violet whispered back. It had two arms, two legs, and a head, but it was not human, not at all. Its head was too narrow, and its arms too long, its shoulders too sloped. And instead of hands and feet, it had four sharp points. It stood on the dragon hearts, and the dragons were under its control. They knew this, and the knowing was heavy and sharp at the same time. The children held their breath. Curiously, the figure in the painting was not painted at all. It had instead been cleverly cut out up from a mirror and affixed somehow onto the canvas. A marvel, really, given the delicacy and narrowness of the arms and legs and the sheer height of the figure itself. Instead of any identifying marks, they saw only reflections of their own grasped hands, their pressed shoulders, their blinking eyes. Look! Violet said, pointing to the symbols at the bottom of the painting. They're changing. And they were. Right before their eyes, the symbols wobbled and shuddered and deflated. They wriggled like snakes. They swapped places and reformed. They became rounded, then angular, then looped, then very tall. Violet and Demetrius stared at the changing script. They opened their mouths, but they could say nothing. And then, Violet? I know, the princess whispered. Is that? Demetrius asked. Yes, Violet said. But how? I don't know, Violet said. The first symbol transmogrified into a letter that they knew, and then another, and then another. Nib, Violet began. No, Demetrius said, suddenly breaking into a cold sweat. Don't say it. Please don't say it. 
He shook himself as though waking up from a particularly bad nightmare and found that he could move his feet. He stepped backward, pulling Violet with him. There's something wrong with it. Everything is wrong here. We need to leave now. Even as they stood there, the letters were growing, covering up the dragon hearts and brightening all the while. Demetrius squinted. But, Violet began, what could it mean? She wondered and wondered and wondered. Why does that word seem so familiar? She thought she might die if she didn't know. And we'll end there because otherwise I'll probably keep going for like another 20 pages. <laughs> Legit. Well, sounds good. Sounds yeah. good. And now we'll cap off all these delightful books with our least favorite children's middle grade books of the year. Mine. I read this for that Mock Newberry I mentioned earlier. And I have to say pretty much everyone else at Mock Newberry loved this. And I thought that I might get into a fight about it. Because I, I literally was like, someone explain this to me. Someone explain to me what happened in this book. And no one could. And I was like, oh, so you don't think that's a problem? And they're like, no, we liked it anyway. And I was like, I don't know. I don't understand what happened in this book. Uh, the book is Nightingale's Nest by, Nest by Nikki Lofton. And it's magical realism, which I don't always like. I think partly for that reason where, you know, if something is realistic fiction, I get it. If it's fantasy, I get it. But in this, I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to think literally happened in this book. And to me, that is kind of a problem. But uh, it's it's the story of a, of a boy named Little John and this girl named Gail who lives near near him in his neighborhood in a in foster home and Gail uh also lives in a tree in a nest and when she sings she can heal she can heal with her magical singing voice but then there's this rich evil man who wants to record her singing and Little John convinces her to let him record her voice because his family's super poor and he wants the money. But then after he records Gail's voice, then her healing powers don't work anymore. And I I kind of feel like maybe he molested her, but that's not literally stated and I don't understand. And I didn't like it. But a lot of other people did. So I'm just going to put that out there, that I was in a definite minority for not liking this book. But also, none of those people could tell me what was supposed to have happened, so I don't know. Anyway, I'm just going to read a little excerpt from when Little John first encounters her magical healing voice. Which, again, it seems like it literally happens, but then also sometimes it seems like she doesn't literally have any powers. And it... Also, she maybe can turn into a bird, and maybe she is a bird, but maybe she's not. Fuck this. It's how I feel about this. <clears throat> anyway. Here, she said, You're hurt. Shut your eyes and let me sing you better. It was cute, I thought. She wanted to sing me a song to make me feel better. I hadn't even as asked her yet about singing for the emperor, but I could wait a few minutes. Humor her. I heard the emperor's back door open, way off on the other side of the fence. Was he going in or coming out? I wasn't quite tall enough to see that far over. Go ahead, then, I said, and shut my eyes. The first notes that came out were sad, almost cries. I squeezed my eyes shut even tighter as I realized she wasn't singing bird song now. It was just as high, but the notes were more purposeful, more meaningful, it seemed like. She still didn't use words, but the melody was the thing. 
Her voice sailed and looped like a swallow up and over the sadness that had lodged in my throat, around my heart, loosening the tightness there, too, and even down my arms and into my hands. My fingers tingled for a moment. I cracked my eyes open when I heard the flutter of wings. A dozen or so grackles had taken up position on the fence, heads cocked, listening intently. They didn't make a single sound, something I never realized grackles were capable of, the noisy things. And then, when the song changed, turned into a light melody and ended, the last few notes spiraling like pollen on a breeze, the grackles all nodded and flew away together. That was the strangest thing, I said. I've never seen... Is it better now? I heard. I thought she was asking if I felt better, and I nodded. But she made an impatient and reached for my arm again. Little John, you didn't even check. I realized then she was examining the bloody scrape marks on my hand. What was she looking for? It's okay, I said. It'll be better in a week. No, she said, and a smile beamed out. It's better now. And she lifted up my hand. The scratch marks were almost gone. Hmm. Anyway, I don't have anything else to say about Nightingale's Nest. So interestingly enough, the premise of that book sounds kind of similar to a pre- the premise of one of the short stories in Cabinet of Curiosities, which was my number three book, if you remember, mm. except much better. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to read that story done better, that conceit used better and funnier and more interesting based on Renata's description, um, I would definitely check out Cabinet of Curiosities. I believe that book, that story was by Claire Legrand because that was the first story that I read that I put the book down to go look up that author and put holds on all the rest of her books. Oh, cool. All right. So my actual worst book, as opposed to talking about one of my favorite books again, (laughs) um, is The Crossroads by Chris Grabenstein. I'm really disappointed that I didn't like this book more. Um, This was another one that I did as an audio when I was driving back and forth from Massachusetts to New Jersey. I don't tend to listen to a lot of audiobooks, except when I am doing that drive, because my commute around town is short enough that it doesn't really make sense. But I had read, this is the guy who did uh, Mr. Lemoncello's Library, or what's that, that book called? Yeah, Escape from Mr. Lemoncello's Library. Yes, that's it. Um, I don't want to go off here because this is your time, but I I like that book. And then I read a separate book of Chris Grabenstein's and was also disappointed by it. So maybe he just only actually wrote one good book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I like that book. And the conceit of this one sounded interesting. It was one of the books that was recommended to me when I said, you know, tell me all the interesting horror, middle grade horror and creepy books that you've read in the past couple of years. And this one actually is old enough that I remember it from when I was selling books and the cover never really grabbed me. And now I'm kind of mad that I wasted my time on it. Um, I mean, it wasn't like garbage, garbage, but it was too, there were too many things going on and they all got wrapped up too neatly in the end. It's about a boy whose father has just gotten remarried and they're moving out from New York into a small town in Connecticut, I believe, where his father grew up. And once he gets there, weird things start happening. And it was just, I felt as though the the young protagonist was not included in, I guess that was a major, a major problem, was that he wasn't included in 
this investigation enough. Um, you know, they're trying to, all these, these weird things are happening because of an accident that happened um, in the town like 50 years beforehand. And his portions of the narrative are not necessarily about figuring that out. Like instead they have his stepmother's point of view and this librarian's point of, and all these other adult point of views doing the actual investigative work, which just seems silly for a middle grade book. Like if I'm a 12 year old kid, why do I want to read about grown up solving a mystery? Uh, it, it just, yeah, you can just watch CSI. Yeah. So I'm going to read a portion of it that is from the point of view of the like ghost creature thing that uh, is a the reincarnated spirit of this bad guy who got into a fatal car wreck at the crossroads <laughs> that um, our protagonist now lives by. He has a fierce hunger for a cheeseburger, fries, and a thick chocolate shake. But the burger barn is gone. Something called Chuck E. Cheese has taken its place. He wants that cheeseburger bad. He hasn't had one in 50 years. He jams the Thunderbird into reverse and peels wheels. No one sees his car. No one hears it. They sense only a slight movement of wind, feel a cold swirl of air. He makes a hard left turn and heads towards the river. I'll go down to the factory, he thinks. Follow somebody on lunch break. Find a cheeseburger. He has no concept of time. It is 4 a.m. Nobody will be going to lunch, especially no employees of the Spratling Clockworks factory, which shuttered its doors in 1983. He pulls into a crumbling parking lot outside an enormous red brick building, an empty shell three stories tall with arched windows. The giant Spratling stands the test of time sign is rusty and faded. He had started working for Julius Spratling in 1951. He pushed a broom, cleaned up trash, and flirted with the factory girls, many of whom he took out back to his secret love nest. The machine shop. It was his passion pit, even after he was married. In the east, the sun begins to rise. Somehow, he understands he has to leave. When dawn comes, he'll be gone. But he knows he will return come nightfall. He senses it. He has work to do. Unfinished business. He also has time. If that lightning bolt couldn't send me to hell, what on earth can? Yeah, so it just... It made me really want french fries and a milkshake. I mean, yeah, most things make me want french fries, though. Yeah, it, it just... And also it was one of those books that, like, ended 15 times. Where, oh. like, you think everybody's safe and everything's okay. But wait! Except it did that, like, six times. And by the end, I had I was home. <laughs> and I couldn't believe there were still 45 minutes of the book left. Uh. <laughs> so I just... My parents weren't home. So I just sat in their kitchen, like, hate listening to the end of this book. Well... All right. <laughs> so those were those were our picks for children's and middle grade. Uh, keeping in mind all our caveats, not necessarily from this year, not necessarily objectively the best or worst. Feel free to tweet at us if you have opinions, as people do on the internet. And now we'll move on to our top five and bottom one picks for young adult literature. I'll start this one. Um, my number five favorite book this year was Proxy by Alex London. This is another one that I had seen people talking about on the internet a lot, and it was not available as an ebook, and I was too lazy to go to a different branch of my library to get it. And then it was available as an ebook, so I read it. Yay! <laughs> 
it's a dystopian sci-fi story um, that follows the protagonist, Sid, who uh, he's 16 and he is of the lower class, which means that uh, he lives in like this kind of gross lower city with like total poverty, total, you know, dystopian, you guys know, everyone's read a million of these books. <laughs> um, and he is a proxy for an upper class boy named Knox. And what that means is that whenever Knox does something wrong, Sid is brought in and punished on his behalf. So it's sort of like a futuristic version of the whipping boy. Knox goes out on a joyride one night and kills a young girl. And because he's charged with vehicular manslaughter and that comes with a prison sentence, that means that Sid has to go to a work camp where he will probably die, even though he is very close to being able to buy his freedom, essentially. So Knox was injured in the accident and he's given a blood transfusion from Sid as well. And Sid basically decides that he is not going to go to prison. He is going to escape and, you know, get a new identity, run away, find something else. And as this all sorts starts to converge, he ends up at a party that Knox is actually at. He kidnaps Knox to use as leverage. And when they go to Knox's house, they find out that this is a much bigger conspiracy than they thought, including the accident that he thought happened but did not actually happen. Uh, and they decide that together they're going to set off and try and figure out what's going on and, you know, bring about revolution to the whole world. Cool. I, I'm trying to think of how to say this. I'm kind of over dystopias personally. I'm of the opinion that really people should write what they want to write. You know, just because I don't like to read about them doesn't mean that people should write fewer of them or that there's too many or whatever. Um, but I personally am not necessarily interested in reading them anymore. Uh, but this book was really gripping. It did some interesting things with the characters and the scope of the dystopia that I hadn't necessarily seen done before in any of these books. Uh, the characters were all really engaging. Even Knox, who's like kind of an asshole, he figures out pretty quickly that Sid is gay. I can't remember if Sid outright says it or he just figures it out and like tries to use that to his advantage by flirting with him. And like, he's just a shithead, but he's... <laughs> somehow weirdly endearing despite it as he sort of grows a self-awareness and grows into himself and discovers that he does genuinely want to be friends with Sid. So it's really good. You should read it. Cool. I haven't read that, but I like probably from the same people as you have had that recommended before. So maybe one day I will read it. But this year I did not. But I did read The Carnival at Bray by Jesse Ann Foley, which I loved. I had a really hard time picking a top five way this year. I really wish we could have had 10, but then this podcast would be too long. So Carnival at Bray is my number five. This has a lot of things that I don't, that I think are often done poorly in YA. I think right now we have a lot of historical fiction that's set in the 80s and 90s. And it's just like, because that's when authors now were teens. And I don't think that that is necessary. And also because then they don't have to do cell phones, I think. I think a lot of the time that's really why something happens to be set in the 80s, and I don't think it's always very successful. But this is set in the early 90s, and I think that time period is crucial to this particular story, which is of a girl named Maggie, who her family has moved from Chicago to Ireland, 
and it's very hard for her and her her uncle has just died and she was very close to her. he was kind of like her cool uncle who would give give her music to listen to and he he introduced her to the music of Nirvana so that that's very important to this time period and she in Ireland is able to you know because of trains and stuff she's able to travel around and she goes to a Nirvana concert and it's so important to her and then Kurt Cobain's death is has such resonance to her and so I'm like okay this is a story that that's why it's set in the 90s because of Kurt Cobain and you couldn't do that now you couldn't do that in the 70s it has to be this story and I think that is something that would resonate. I'm not like a number one Nirvana fan or anything, but I like them. I was a little young when Kurt Cobain died for that to be a really big thing to me, but I can still see how it works so well as a focal point for this story. And Maggie's voice and her grief are so well done. And it was really great. Check it out. I will. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My uh, number four favorite book that I read this year, and like Renata, um, and I felt this way for middle grade too, I just read so many great books this year that it was really hard to narrow it down to five. And then I kept taking ones off and moving them around. And this is one that's been in basically every position on the list. Most of these have been in basically every position on the list. And it's More Happy Than Not by Adam Silvera. This is another it's not necessarily a dystopia. It's one of those like near future kind of things where it takes place in a time that is very, very close to ours, but with like one different sci-fi element, which is something that I actually really like. (laughs) So this is a story about a boy named Aaron whose father has recently killed himself. And in the wake of that, he's been kind of a mess and he's trying to be happy and it's really difficult And uh, luckily, he has this great girlfriend, Genevieve, and his mom, who's super overworked, but very supportive. And, uh, you know, a brother who he feels like he can't really connect to, but it's still family. And he's kind of rubbing up against them the wrong way after his father's suicide. But what can you do? And as he's trying to... Oh, and after his father killed... Not long after his father killed himself, he also tried to kill himself uh, unsuccessfully. So he's trying to kind of find his footing and Genevieve has to go to art camp. And while she's gone, Aaron meets this new kid, Thomas, and Aaron's friends are not necessarily thrilled that he's spending all this time with Thomas, but he is. He does everything with Thomas for days and days and days. And he thinks that maybe Thomas is gay and into him, which is okay. Like he's cool with that, but he's straight and he has a girlfriend except maybe he's like not super straight and it's it's hard to I don't want to give away all of the twists in the book because I think that they're really important and they were not necessarily the twists that I was expecting even even though some of them even from just reading the jacket flap you're like oh I know what this is about I was still surprised by some of them and it's just it's a really painful book about the things that people will do to themselves and to other people and to their families in their struggle to find their own identity, to react to the identity of others, to make their way in a world that is not always welcoming. And the narrative that follows Aaron is just so beautifully, painfully written. It's really heartbreaking. And yet it still somehow manages to end on an optimistic note in a way, even though it's really heartbreaking. (laughs) (laughs) 
but I definitely recommend it, even though it's probably like a three tissue book. That's another one that's been on my list. I, it's It's gotten some good buzz on the internet. I haven't read it yet, but I did read my number four book on the list, which is Gabby, A Girl in Pieces by Isabel Quintero. This is another one you might have heard about online. It had a lot of a lot of talk on Twitter, and that's why I picked it up. It's a book that has a lot going on, and I think in the hands of a lesser writer, it would be easy for this book to kind of collapse or come across very, like, after-school special-y. Um, it's Gabby's diary. She's a Latina girl. Her father is addicted to meth. Her two best friends, uh, her best friend Cindy is a pregnant and in high school, and her other best friend is gay and got kicked out of the house for being gay. Um, so she's kind of trying to help them out and come come to terms with her own stuff. She She's a fat girl and she's kind of trying to own that but still feeling kind of insecure about it because society. Uh, it's told in diary format and there's also some like kind of drawings, kind of more like zine pages, kind of poet, just like a mix, like how how a teenager might express themselves differently depending on what's going on. But Gabby's voice is is so strong. I just loved her so much as a character, um, just rooting for her every step of the way. She's very funny. Just, you should read it. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> read Gabby, A Girl in Pieces by Isabel Quintero, Quintero, if you haven't already. My number three book is Please Ignore Vera Dietz by A.S. King. This is an, another book that weirdly deals with death. Yes, I read a lot of those. Kids like death. Yeah. <laughs> so Vera is a high school senior um, and her best friend from childhood, Charlie, recently died right before school started. And at the beginning of the book, we know that Vera knows things about how he died that are different than what the circumstances are that people think, but that she doesn't want to share them. Um, and that she and Charlie had had a falling out a few months before he died and gone from doing everything together and being around each other together all the time to being almost openly antagonistic against each other. And we learn through flashbacks, through these moments Vera has of communicating with Charlie's spirit, through things that Vera says and thinks and her interactions with other characters, some of the circumstances of how Charlie, who's came from an abusive household and was working class and how that kind of rubbed the wrong way with some people against Vera's more middle class and at the time like solid home life circumstances. And we learned that Vera's mother left and why and how Vera is essentially become a functioning alcoholic in order to get through the day and get through her job delivering pizzas and how all of her history with Charlie sort of built up around each other and intertwined with itself so much that it didn't necessarily directly lead to the circumstances of his death, but, you know, how it got there and how it was their relationship that sort of set Charlie on this path. It was really good. I'm doing a terrible job of explaining it. It's told in... I, I read this before and I also really liked it. One thing that's really unique about it is the way that the narrative is so split among Vera and her dad and even, like, inanimate objects. Yeah, there's a lot of, like... There'll be asides from, like she said, like Vera's dad and and the pagoda, which is this building nearby that they used to go to and that her uh, her parents went to on their first date and all this stuff. And it gives you a lot of the 
background into both Vera and Charlie and the town. And yeah, it's, it's really, it's really good. It's hard for me to describe it. I think it's a hard book to summarize concisely. I think there's a lot going on in it. Yeah. And it's, you know, again, one of those things where I don't want to give away like all of the twists and turns and all of these books, but for something like this, where we start out with the protagonist knowing so much more than we do it's hard to describe why it's so good without telling you what happens in it all right um my next book this is one that we did talk about last year and fuck it it's my podcast it's 50 percent my podcast and i'll do what i want i'm gonna talk some more about the lunar chronicles by marissa meyer because i love them and the the last book winter came out of that series and that is my number three on my list and it's so good and it was just everything I wanted it to be in terms of bringing together all these threads from the previous books that we did talk about last year so you can double back if you want to hear about those but it it tied them all together so well but also brought in its own new things and Marissa Meyer is so good at using the fairy tales as her base and then adding to them and then having these twists and turns and then it comes back around to the fairy tale to where you're in the position of like, oh yeah, like of course that would happen because that's what happens in the fairy tale, duh. But also I did not see that coming at all. Oh my God. And I don't know how to put it into words exactly, but it's so clever and I loved all the characters. And this book was very long at this point because there were so many characters and she had to do so much work to get them to, spoiler, a happily ever ending, happily ever after ending because that's how fairy tales end. And you knew that going into it, but but all, all the same was like, maybe not. Maybe it's not going to end happily. I just don't know. And they're all really good. So check them out, I say. Uh, our editor, Becca, also really likes those. I'll just say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we tweeted about it already. But Becca, what's up? <laughs> so my number two book is Paper Valentine by Rena Yavanov. Interestingly enough, I read two books by her this year. And the first one I read, I was not necessarily like impressed with it all even though the previous book of hers I had read I really loved but this one came recommended to me so I picked it up and I really liked it a lot so you know you win some you lose some I guess this is um, another kind of weird creepy book Uh, it's about a girl named Hannah whose best friend Lillian has died uh, I think like six months ago or a year ago or so and she and Lillian were super close they did everything together they like made their own clothes together and they hung out together all the time as part of this group. And Lillian had an eating disorder and that is why she died. And Lillian's ghost is haunting Hannah and is just constantly around her at home, at school, anywhere she is, Lillian is there too. So it's the summertime, it's July, it is like the hottest July ever, and young girls are being killed throughout her town, which is like a small town. It's not a big city. It's somewhere where things like this don't happen. And Lillian keeps pushing Hannah to learn more about it, to investigate it, to read all the newspaper articles about it. Uh, Hannah has a job working at a photo development lab. And because the town is so small, it's the lab that the police come to, to develop their crime scene photos. So she has access to all of this evidence. And she decides like, 
that she kind of has to do it. She has to put everything she knows together to try and, and help solve this case while she can. And, you know, in the meantime, she's dealing with her attraction to a boy from the wrong side of the tracks and all these other things going on in her life. And it was just really good. It was very engaging. And I liked that the author went that extra step. I really hate, which we'll get to when I talk about my worst book of the year, stories where it becomes just ludicrous that the teens or the kids aren't telling grownups, which I know is hard. Because when you're writing a YA book or a middle grade book, you need your main characters to be self-sufficient. You can't have them running to the adults at every turn. So you need to be able to craft the plot in such a way that it makes sense that they don't run to the police the first time something terrible happens, you know? And I feel like she did a really good job of walking that line of having uh, Hannah actually go to the police at some point, but that that doesn't necessarily save the day and that, you know, there's more that needs to, to happen. And it really worked really well for me. So I recommend it if you like creepy things or mysteries or creepy mysteries. Cool. My number two book on my list, this is a tough battle for number one spot. This could easily have been my favorite book of the year, but I'm calling it second favorite. Uh, Dumplin' by Julie Murphy, which again, I, I know I saw a lot of people tweeting about a lot of people in the land of library Twitter, which is a bubble that I'm in, has been very well read. I don't know how how many people outside of that bubble are reading it or what. But it's so good. You should all read it. It's about a 16-year-old girl named Willow Dean who lives in a small town in Texas. And her mother is in charge of the local beauty pageant. And she, you know, she's very focused on kind of on the pageant and these sort of more like traditional, basically what you think of when you think of a pageant mom. And Willow Dean is very uh, kind of not interested in that. And also, she is fat. She's a fat girl, and she knows that that's not who the pageants are for. And she knows that, you know, her mom is only interested in these kind of, like, more conventionally pretty girls who are doing the pageant. But Will, she doesn't, she's not necessarily, like, it's a sore spot for her, but she's not, like oh, if I were skinny, like, then my mom would love me more. She's just kind of like, well, fuck you, mom. But more complicated than that. But so she, she, she's a very well-rounded character. Um, she has her own romance. Uh, she has a complicated relationship also with the memory of her beloved aunt who died before the start of this book. And her aunt was, was extremely obese and died uh, basically from... Com complications related to that and so her mom is also kind of like look I don't want you to die like your aunt did and there's there's a lot going on with weight in this book in a much more complicated way than happens I would say usually in fiction and then meanwhile Willow Dean decides that she is going to enter the pageant just looking the way that she is and she inspires some other kind of misfit girls to also join the pageant and show off like their own talents or what what makes them beautiful. It's the kind of thing that as I'm describing it, maybe it sounds a little like cliche or Disney Channel movie, but it's so funny and it's so it's so combines different elements of these characters that it, it feels very fleshed out and it's so great. And uh, Gabby, a grown piece, has also had this to some extent. 
uh, where it's a book about a fat girl and it doesn't end with her losing the weight and then feeling good about herself, which tends to be the YA narrative for fat girls. So that's Dumplin'. Check it out. Everyone I know who's read that has raved about it and it's definitely on my list. Yay. All right, my number one book of the year is uh, Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda by Becky Albertalli. I really love this book. If you listen to the podcast regularly, you'll know that because I was reading it while we were recording an episode and I think went on a, a tangent about how good it was. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like something you would do at all. <laughs> you know, even though it had absolutely nothing to do with whatever we were reading. Uh, It is a book about Simon, who is gay, and who is not out, not necessarily because he thinks that people will react badly, but because it's his thing, and his life is complicated, his family dynamics are complicated, and he doesn't get to have much to himself, and this is a thing that he has that's his, and... He's afraid that if he tells people, it's not that they'll necessarily think less of him, but their idea of him will change and they'll make a big deal out of it. And he doesn't want that. He's carrying on a secret romance correspondence with a boy in his school who he does not know. They communicate via email with pseudonyms and their emails kind of pepper the text back and forth and he is obviously starting to develop a crush on this boy blue and eventually falling in love with him and all of these other things are happening at the same time within his friends group within uh the school itself and one of them is that he forgets to log out of his secret email account for the emails that he exchanges with blue one day and a boy in his class sees finds out that he's gay and essentially blackmails him into getting blackmail Simon into getting him a date with one of Simon's friends, a a pretty new girl named Abby. And Simon feels like he doesn't really have a choice and this is a shitty thing, but you know, he'll, he'll do his best and he does it. And it's just like, it's just so interesting. It's so interesting. And like I said before, I'm not necessarily one of those people who says, you know, oh, there's too many books about homophobia and coming out. There's too many books where some everyone's family disowns them when they find out they're gay. Like, I understand that those stories are still important and that there are still places in the world and in this country even, and, you know, probably even here in Massachusetts where gay marriage has been legal for like 900 years and no one cares, where that can still happen to people and there are still gay teens who need to read that. But I really like that this book is out there and it It exists as an alternative narrative to why someone might not want to come out. Um, There's a really interesting discussion of microaggressions throughout the book without necessarily calling them microaggressions, where Simon kind of reacts to people making jokes, especially his father, about gayness, not necessarily in a homophobic way, but in kind of like a, a jokey, uncomfortable way, which... If any of you were reading this and you're queer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, Then there's uh, similar things that happen with some assumptions that Simon makes about who Blue actually is. And it's just, you know, Simon's complicated. He makes mistakes and it's not easy, but everything works out for a happy ending and Blue ends ends up being someone awesome and... I just really liked it. I really liked the portrayal of these issues in a new way. I really liked how it delved into the reality of 
you know, people, there's, there's all this problematic discussion around the idea of coming out and how you have to come out, like, because you need to be a, a, a role model for other people who are too scared to come out of the closet and you need to be yourself. And sometimes there's reasons why you don't want to. Sometimes you can be 100% comfortable with who you are and what you are and who you want to date and just you know, not want to deal with all of the blowback or, or keep that to yourselves. And that's fine. You know, there you do you do you. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It was just really great. And it was really funny. It was a lot of fun. It's great. You should read it. And I'm going to read you a little bit of it right now. This is Simon coming out to his family when he finally decides his hand is is forced in some ways to come out to his family. But he decides to go through with it. By nine, everyone's awake and the coffee's on and we're having cookies for breakfast. Alice and Nora are reading stuff on their phones. I pour myself a mug of coffee and add an avalanche of sugar. My mom watches me stir. I didn't know you drink coffee. Okay, this. She does this every freaking time, both of them. They put me in a box and every time I try to nudge the lid open, they slam it back down. It's like nothing about me is allowed to change. Well, I do. Okay, she says, putting her hands up like, whoa there, buck. That's fine, Sai. It's just different. I'm just trying to keep up with you. If she thinks me drinking coffee is big news, it's going to be quite a fucking morning. We turn to the pile of presents. Blue told me that in his family, presents are opened one at a time and that all the cousins and everyone else just sit and watch each other do it. And then after a few rounds of that, they stop for a while and have lunch or something. It's just so civilized. It takes them all afternoon to clear out the Christmas tree. Not so with the spires. Alice works her way underneath the tree in a crouch position and starts passing bags and boxes down the line, and everyone talks at once. A Kindle case? I don't have a... Open the other one, honey. Oh, hey, Aurora Coffee. No, put it the other way, Boop. Everyone wears these things at Wesleyan. In 20 minutes, it's like a freaking paper source exploded all over the living room. I'm on the floor, leaning into the front of the couch, winding the cords of my new earbuds around my fingers. Bieber tucks a bow between his paws, and he nips and tugs at it, and everyone's just kind of draped around various pieces of furniture. It's clearly my moment. Though, if this moment really belonged to me, it wouldn't be happening. Not now, I mean. Not yet. Hey, I want to talk to you guys about something. I try to sound casual, but my voice is froggy. Nora looks at me and gives me a tiny, quick smile, and my stomach sort of flips. What's up? says my mom, sitting up straight. I don't know how people do this, how Blue did this. Two words, two freaking words, and I'm not the same Simon anymore. My hand is over my mouth, and I stare straight ahead. I don't know why I thought this would be easy. I know what this is, says my dad. Let me guess. You're gay. You got someone pregnant. You're pregnant. Dad, stop it, says Alice. I close my eyes. I'm pregnant, I say. I thought so, kid, says my dad. You're glowing. I look him in the eye. Really, though, I'm gay two words everyone is quiet for a moment and then my mom says honey that's god that's thank you for telling us and then alice says whoa bub good for you and then my dad says gay huh and then my mom says so talk me through this it's one of her favorite psychologist lines i look at her and shrug we're proud of you she adds and then my dad grins and says so which one of them did it did what Turned you off women. Was it the one with the eyebrows, the eye makeup, or the overbite? Dad, that's so offensive, says Alice. What? I'm just lightening the mood. Simon knows we love him. Your heterosexist comments aren't lightening the mood. (laughs) I mean, I guess it's about what I expected. 
My mom's asking me about my feelings. Dad's turning it into a joke. Alex is getting political. And Nora's keeping her mouth shut. You could say there's a kind of comfort and predictability. And my family is pretty goddamn predictable. But I'm so exhausted and unhappy right now. I thought it would feel like a weight had been lifted. But it's just like everything else this week. Strange and off-kilter and surreal. So that's it. It's, I hope, like, ah, uh, it's just, a, it's a delight to read. <laughs> it's yes. delightful. I read it, I also really enjoyed it this year, but d- didn't put it in my top five, but still really enjoyed it. And now I guess I'll move on to my top choice of the year, which is Carry On by Rainbow Rowell. And I know a lot of people, myself included, really loved her book Fangirl, about, among other things, a girl who writes a lot of fan fiction about the character Simon Snow, who is functionally Harry Potter. And this is the book that Rainbow Rowell wrote about Simon Snow. And I I was excited when she announced that she would do this, but also maybe a little bit skeptical, because, like, we already have Harry Potter, so what are you doing here? But it really does go beyond that and in some ways it's kind of a response to Harry Potter and a response to other chosen one narratives and the way that those function in our society and also specifically I think a response to kind of queer baiting and all kinds of media where you know you have these two male characters who are very close and maybe seem like they could be pining but of course nothing is actually going to happen and in Carry On, we do see a romantic relationship actually on the pages unfold between Simon and, and Boz, his roommate, who is perhaps a vampire. And one thing that I did really like about this in particular is the way that the magical world building works in this. It's not quite as elaborate as Harry Potter because this is only one book and that's a whole series, but I really like the way that the spells work in this book. And I'm going to read you a little bit from Simon explaining how those things work. Down in the winding tunnels of the catacomb, I use every revealing spell I know and every finding spell. Come out, come out, wherever you are. It's showtime. Scooby-dooby-doo, where are you? I call for Boz by his full name. That makes a spell harder to resist. Magic words are tricky. Sometimes to reveal something hidden, you have to use the language of the time it was stashed away. And sometimes an old phrase stops working when the rest of the world is sick of saying it. I've never been good with words. That's partly why I'm such a useless magician. Words are very powerful, Miss Possibelf said during our first magic words lesson. No one else was paying attention. She wasn't saying anything they didn't already know. But I was trying to commit it all to memory. And they become more powerful, she went on, the more that they're said and read and written in specific, constant, consistent combinations. The key to casting a spell is tapping into that power. Not just saying the words, but summoning their meaning. Which means you have to have a good vocabulary to do magic. And you have to be able to think on your feet and be brave enough to speak up and have an ear for a solid turn of phrase. And you have to actually understand what you're saying, how the words translate into magic. You can't just wave your wand and repeat whatever you've heard somebody saying down on the street corner. That's a good way to accidentally separate someone from their bollocks. None of it comes naturally to me. Words, language, speaking... I don't remember when I learned to talk, but I know they tried to send me to specialists. Apparently, that can happen to kids in care or kids with parents who never talk to them. They just don't learn how. 
I used to see a counselor and a speech therapist. Use your words, Simon. I got so bloody sick of hearing that. It was so much easier to just take what I wanted instead of asking for it, or thump whoever was hurting me, even if they thumped me right back. I barely spoke the first month I was at Watford. It was easy not to. No one else around here shuts up. So, yes, it's just a really cool way of thinking out magic and words. And there's a little bit of, you know, one of the other wizards can cast spells in Spanish. And those use a totally different sets of phrase. It's just really fun to think about. And I liked it. I'm on the hold list for that, predictably. (laughs) It's a mile long. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you'll dig it. Yeah, I even put myself on the, the physical copy hold. Um, now that I take the bus by the library every day. Nice. See, my problem with taking physical library books out is that bringing them back becomes a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Since most of my librarying is done over the internet, I, you know, I, my, my library is very well funded by my paychecks. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Anyway, so now it's time for my worst book, my worst young adult book this year. Um, which is Panic by Lauren Oliver. And if you'll remember from last year, Lauren Oliver wrote one of my favorite books of last year. And I generally really like her books. This was another one that I took out as an audiobook to listen to when I was going down to Jersey. And I just, it just didn't work for me on almost any level. And I know, I know she's a great writer and I know she's a great storyteller, but this, it's like I was saying before, you know, you need to have a good reason why your protagonist is not going to go for adults to adults for help is not going to call the police is not going to turn in people that they know are doing dangerous things or else your concept kind of falls apart. And I'll believe to a certain extent, I have a certain suspension of disbelief about teenagers not wanting to bring the police in or bring adults in at a point where I think actual real life teenagers really would like, I'll I'll give a certain suspension of disbelief for fiction, but this blew it out of the water by like a third of the way through this book when people literally are dying and they're still not going to the police. I (laughs) lost my ability to believe that this was something that was going to work. So the book is about a game played in this very small town called panic Uh, The the game is called Panic, not the town. The idea is that you raise all all of this money is raised by people essentially buying into the game throughout high school. And then senior year, the summer after senior year, anyone can enter to compete and you win all of that collected money at the end of it, which is thousands of dollars, which is a big deal to kids in this little like podunk, super poor working class town. So we have Heather, who is who's just been broken up with by her boyfriend, who she thought was the love of her life. Uh, she has a really shitty home life. She's trying to protect her little sister from her drug addict mother and decides at the very last minute that she's going to participate this year. Her friend Nat, who is beautiful and charming and is the object of everyone's affection, has also is also playing and has been planning to play for a long time. And then the, our other main character is Dodge, who his sister was the runner up a couple years beforehand, but the last challenge in the game put her in a car accident and she now has to use a wheelchair. And he is determined to 
get back at the kid who did that to her by taking out that kid's brother. Um, so the object of panic is that the judges, who are these mysterious people, no one knows who they are, come up with these risky, dangerous, frequently life-threatening, and totally illegal challenges of strength and bravery and things like that. And as people fail the challenges, they get kicked out of the game until there's only one person left. So already I walked into this thinking like, okay, this sounds like maybe it's not necessarily a concept that can go on for as long as this book is. And it turns out I was right. By like a third of the way through, people have literally died and they still refuse to go to the police. Things keep getting more bizarre and more just like off the wall. It, it, it just, I could not believe any of this would actually happen. And this is supposed to be a realistic novel. And I it just did not work for me. And yeah, that, that's basically it. I co-sign that. It seems like it could be a cool concept, but it it's like a dystopia, but set in our world. And there wasn't enough to make me buy into it. Yeah. So I'm going to read a little bit of it that it was kind of like one of the tipping points for me, which is after a person has literally died in a fire that was started as part of the game, their little group of people, uh, Heather and Nat and Dodge and Heather's friend Bishop, who is not participating in the game, are all getting together to talk about what to do next. Heather didn't wait for Nat to speak, although Nat had called the meeting. I'm out, she said. I'm not playing anymore. We have to wait for Dodge, Nat said. I don't have to wait for anyone, Heather said. She was annoyed by Nat's calm. She was blinking happily, sleepily in the sun, as though nothing had happened. I'm not playing anymore. It's simple as that. It's sick, Bishop said fiercely. Sick. Anyone in their right minds. The judges aren't in their right minds, though, are they? Nat said, turning to him. I mean, they can't be. You heard about Zev. That wasn't... Bishop abruptly stopped speaking, shaking his head. I, for one, don't plan on losing my chance at $67,000, Nat said, still with that infuriating calm. Then she shook her head. It isn't right to start without Dodge. Why? Heather fired back. Why are you so worried about Dodge? I made a deal with you, remember? Nat looked away, and then Heather knew. A bitter taste rushed into her throat. You made a deal with him, too, she said. You lied to me. No, Nat looked at her, eyes wide, pleading. No, Heather, I never planned on cutting him in. What are you guys talking about, Bishop asked. What do you mean, cutting him in? Stay out of it, Bishop, Heather said. I'm in, he said. He dragged a hand through his hair, and in that instant, Heather felt that they would never get back to normal, making fun of Bishop's hair, loading it with gel and twisting it to make it stick straight up. I'm in it. You're, my, you're at my house, remember? This isn't a game anymore, Heather said. Everything was spiraling out of control. Don't you get it? Someone's dead. Jesus. Bishop sat down heavily, rubbing his eyes, as though Heather saying the words made them real. Why did you play, Heather? Nat stood up when Bishop sat down. Her arms were crossed, and she made little clicking noises with her tongue. Rhythmic. A pattern. If you didn't want the risk, if you couldn't handle it, why did you play? Because Matt stupid heppily dumped you? Because he was sick of getting blue-balled by his girlfriend? Heather lost his breath. She was conscious of air going out of her at once, escaping in a short hiss. Bishop spoke up sharply. Sharply, Nat. Even Natalie looked surprised and immediately guilty. I'm sorry, she said quickly, avoiding Heather's eyes. I didn't mean... Yeah, I'm going to just stop there. Yeah, meh. But her other books are really good, though. Yeah, you should definitely read her other books. <laughs> 
Can't win them all. I don't know. She's written way more good books in her life than I have, but... And way more good books than bad books. This is probably the first one by her that I've read that I've been like, nope. Yeah. Sad. My worst book is Alice in Zombieland by Gina Showalter. This is one I would not have picked up. You you know I don't like zombies. I don't like horror. But at my library, we do a, a reading wildly book club where we all have to read a different genre every month. And so I had to read a horror book. And I mistakenly, based on the title and cover of this book, thought that it might have something to do with Alice in Wonderland, which I like. Spoiler, it does not. Like, the character's name is Alice, and she sees a cloud that looks like a white rabbit, but there's nothing else that's like Alice in Wonderland. So there's that. And then also... This just feels like it's a lot of kind of cliches about like YA literature and romance. And and I know Gina Showalter writes a lot of adult romance also. And so I kind of wonder if this is maybe aimed more at adults who like YA romance or something. I don't know. But this girl named Alice, her parents and sister die in a car accident that was also a zombie attack. But she, at the time, doesn't know it was a zombie attack. Because it turns out that zombies are actually more like ghosts. And most people can't see zombies. But now that she's had this near-death experience, she can see them. And also, there's some kids at her school who are all super hot, obviously. And they also hunt zombies. So she kind of has to learn from them what's going on. And the hottest of all the zombie-hunting boys, she and him have this connection where... Only the first time they see each other each day, they both have this intense vision of themselves. And a lot of the time it's a vision of themselves kissing. And sometimes it's a vision of them fighting zombies together. And it turns out they're sort of having visions of things that they will do in the future. And they start hooking up and also fighting zombies. And the whole thing is like so infuriatingly stupid. And I'm going to read you a little bit of explanation about how these zombies work, which, again, I'm not a zombie expert. I don't like them. But this is not zombies. And I'm offended that you would put zombie in your title. Here's what they are. This this is a scene between Alice, a.k.a. Allie, and the hot boy. I don't, his name is Cole, but I don't care. So he is explaining things to her. So he says, just like there are rules in this natural realm, there are rules in the spirit realm. We've learned that whatever we speak while in spirit form happens, good or bad, as long as it doesn't violate someone's free will and as long as we believe it. So if you say something like, this zombie is killing me, and you're convinced that he is, in fact, killing you, he absolutely will succeed in killing you, and there will be nothing more you can do to stop him. After everything I'd seen, I shouldn't doubt him, but that was just a little too out there. So we just speak, and boom, it happens? Yes. Sometimes it takes time, but yes. His hand tightened on my knee. Trust me on that until I can prove it, okay? Rather than telling him he'd have to do a lot to convince me, I nodded. Good. Any other questions? How cute. Of course I had more questions. How did you kill them? What was that light in your hand? That was a purified fire. The zombies disintegrate when they come into prolonged contact with it. Prolonged seemed to only take a few seconds. You were out of it, so time wasn't registering properly. 
That's why we do everything we can to disable the zombies first. The less they fight us, the easier it is to get our hands on their chest without having our wrists chewed. A spark of excitement zing just under my skin. Will I be able to produce that fire? The thought of wielding such a potent weapon against the zombies. Oh, yeah. Allie liked. With time, you will. Now, I'll give you one more question, he said. I don't want to overwhelm you. Too late. But I thought for a moment, trying to pick from an endless pit of potentials. Why don't the zombies enter our homes? Why do they only come out once every two weeks? Or, with tonight, every few days? Someone needs lessons in math, too. That was three questions. I shrugged. I like to round up. I'm not going to read you his answers to those questions because they're dumb and it doesn't make sense and I hate it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But Kate, come on. Like, you know zombies. That's not zombies, right? What the fuck is that? Oh, yeah, no, it sounded terrible. Also, you fight them with the secret. I don't know if you (laughs) caught that, but you do. (laughs) You fight these fucking ghost zombies with the secret and then you make out with a hot guy for like ten pages. Yeah. Ugh. Nope, that that does, on that wonderful note, (laughs) that does end this episode, part one of our year in review. Hooray. We'll Uh, be back in two... Actually, we've got it. We're sneaking a bonus episode in here. We'll be back in one week with our bonus episode about Hamilton, which you may have noticed we didn't talk about once at all today because we saved it all up for this bonus episode. My gosh, you're right. This is like the worst episode forever. <laughs> um, yeah, we did a it's a special best bestseller episode uh, where we talk about readers' advisory for Hamilton, a little bit about the musical, and we play some fun games with historical figures. You're gonna want to check it out. That's right. Or you're sick of us talking to Hamilton, and you'll skip it and just wait for. Uh, in two weeks, we'll be back with part two of our best of the year, which will be our adult and graphic novel comics picks for the year. In the meantime, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at 14 across. You can follow me at Renata Snacks. You can follow the podcast at Worst Bestseller with no S. You can like us on Facebook, Worst Bestseller spelled normally. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you do, please rate and review us. Uh, When you rate and review us, it pops us up on the charts and makes it easier for other people to discover our podcast. I know that you'll do it because I'm using the secret to make it happen. Uh, And also fighting zombies with it, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you've enjoyed our choices for the year. Feel free to tweet at us with your approval or disapproval as I know the internet loves to do about any sort of top choices list situation. And uh, we'll be back next time. Yay. Bye. Bye. Fuck it. It's my podcast. It's 50% my podcast, and I'll do what I want.